0: when I'm about to stand up and say hi and I just sob. Um, Gosh, Glenridge, what a privilege to be here with you this morning. Um, I honestly can't actually express what a privilege it is, but it it truly is. Thank you, Stan, Heather, the elders for inviting us and just making us feel so welcome in a church that is so dear to our hearts and so close to our hearts all these years. Um, When I when worship first started, there was, I don't know which forsaki <laughs> Justin. Justin and his wife and the beautiful team. And I was just like, God, isn't this a gorgeous picture? And then I saw Natalie, Josh, you know, all these beautiful kids that were little kids in the Glenridge years. And my daughter was the same. They would, they would be in worship, you know doing this with the flags or whatever they were doing and they would hit each other and then they would be like you know like completely distracted and arguing and I'd like wow are they really even getting this and then to see all the years later the incredible incredible goodness of God in all these children and I want you to know they're all over the world serving Jesus And it's a beautiful, beautiful testimony to a faithful God and to a church that's carried a lampstand. And I want to just thank you this morning that that lampstand is still going. I saw the little wiggly. I knew it was your girls. I've never met them, but I just looked and thought, those are wigglys. But you just see these beautiful children. I want to tell you, the kingdom of God is advancing. And to see the inheritance of generation to generation to generation. Your children's children worshipping God is such a privilege. So thank you, everyone. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Just hold it down. One, two, three, four.
1: One, two. there we go. Wow, seeing our daughter on the screen, I wondered when Stan said, someone who knows them, my word, that was dreadfully unfair. <laughs> thank you, Glenn Rich, thank you for inviting us, thank you for holding strong and true to the divine assignment God gave us all those years ago. Tonight we'll tell the story, so I don't want... To be distracted, if you wish, by that. I feel like God has something to say to all of you. I want to thank you for evolving in the sociopolitical landscape as it has changed. And to change yourselves as a church in the forefront and cusp of what God wants to do. That's a remarkable story by the sociology of movements you've held. Where most churches begin a slow, steady decline to mediocrity. You've held In spite of incredible odds Instead of incredible obstacles Thank you for remaining A strongly urban church With all its challenges When uh, many have moved out Of a complex urban landscape You've stayed And you've stayed strong Thank you for being strong On the major issues And thank you for being able To pivot and be agile In this COVID crisis Remarkable But what's more remarkable is Jesus. Sadly, as evangelicals, we don't really read much Catholic writings or Catholic personalities. But my favorite New York Times columnist, a man by the name of David Brooks, recently converted from a secular Jewish background to walking with Jesus, writes a story of a Catholic woman called Dorothy Day, and none of us had heard of her, and I certainly had not. Dorothy Day was born in the late 1800s. As a little girl, her parents moved them to San Francisco just before the great San Francisco earthquake that flattened the city. They then moved back to New York, and uh, that began her very bohemian lifestyle. She became a social activist. She became an anarchist. She became connected with the socialists and and um, uh, gave herself to a very acrimonious life. She was, it was said that she could drink the mob under the table. They loved to compete with her. She had an abortion. She had multiple lovers, uh, with whom one of them with whom she had a daughter. But it was during that time that she met the living Christ. And what's amazing to me in the story is a journey that led her to the quote I'm about to give you. She ended up starting 27 homes during her lifetime. There are now over 200 of them in America alone, and there are 50 in the nations of the world. Because what she saw in her boho lifestyle, a bohemian lifestyle, was the fact that there were many women who were coming out of prison, had nowhere to go, many who were uh, the, the, the result of domestic violence, many who were homeless, many who were addicts. And so she started her first home and moved in there with her little girl, She was an introvert, so this was traumatic for her that she had to lay aside her own human introversion and live 24-7 with a bunch of women who cussed her, moaned at her, belittled her. Many a time there was no food, so she would have water and bread. Sitting next to an alcoholic who reeked of alcohol across the way from an addict who was shaking as they were trying to go through withdrawal. It's a compelling story. In fact, a movie has been made of her life. But in her last years, she was asked to write down everything she could remember about her life. And she sat down to write that, and this is actually what she wrote. I tried to think back. I tried to remember the life that the Lord gave me. And, and remember, for those who are more curious about the sinner, Dorothy, it was a compelling story. For those who are more compelled by her, this, the believer, that's a compelling story. But the thing that was most captivating for her, I quote, the other day I wrote down the words, a life remembered. And I was going to try to make a summary for myself to write about what mattered most, but I couldn't do it. I just sat there and thought of our Lord and His visit to us all those centuries ago, and here it comes. And I said to myself, and I'm quoting, that my great luck... Was to have him on my mind for all this time. The only thing that mattered to her, you know, she had a very intimate relationship with the man who walked away from her when she accepted Christ. They were deep lovers. She bought a cabin on the water and they would often go there for weeks at a time, lock. The world out, and they were intimate and highly erotic and highly sexual. And when she accepted Christ, he walked away from her. And she wrote poems and letters and prose and correspondence with him, saying, I long to feel your nakedness. I long to cuddle up to your chest. I'd love for us to be intimate again. But so compelling was this Jesus that that seemed a very poor second to thinking all of these days only about Jesus. We suffer from the tragedy of the familiar, where the pulpit becomes to many of us simply a boring repetition, a repeat of things we've heard before. But that was not her story. The only thing that she could think about writing with this incredible life The Catholics are wanting to make her a saint. That gives you some indication of how high she was valued. Was arrested many times. Imprisoned many times. But in spite of all of that, I said to myself that great luck was to have him on my mind for so long in my life. What a story. That at the end of your life, all that you want to talk about is Jesus. Jesus. Nothing is more compelling, not family, not business, not riches, not wealth, not profile, not influence. The only thing she wanted to talk about was Jesus. Why and how was Jesus so compelling for her in these latter years of her life? That she walked away from her lover whom she never stopped loving and desperately wanted intimacy with. That she walked away from a life of introversion. That she wanted to lock herself away from the public. And she spent every day with people who despised her. Who was used to an exotic lifestyle with exotic food, eating at exotic restaurants, hanging out with the mob. And now she sat having bread and water. What is it? What did she know about Jesus that most of us in this room do not know? For whom Jesus is a very poor second cousin. We have him at weddings, maybe at Easter. It is so fascinating for me at this time, how many churches are studying either Hebrews or want Peter. And I want to just front end, back end Hebrews for just a moment, because I don't really have another message but Jesus. The author of Hebrews is interesting because no one really knows. It was grammatical, traditional, to put the name of the author on any correspondence, and yet this was a letter written most intimately. And some have said, well, it was Paul, but the the use of the Greek isn't as compelling as his Greek was. Some have said, Apollos, well, maybe, because we know he was a highly intelligent man, and by his name he was Grecian. Clement or Barnabas. But the one I like, and no one knows for sure, is a, is a theological position presented by A.J. Gordon, Donald Guthrie, and the German theologian Adolf Harknatt. But I think it has to be, because I think Priscilla wrote this book. Remember Priscilla and Nicola? I think she wrote this book. They think she wrote this book, which makes me happier. Now, why is that important? Remember, she spent time, and forgive my passion, I am a passionate man. One guy said, listening to Chris is like trying to drink out of a fire hydrant. I'm sorry, I don't know how to do it any other way. So why do I think it's Priscilla? Because I think there's a high mothering of the church. Who was the church? Who was this letter written to? It was written to people who were suffering severe and brutal persecution. I'll quote in a moment. I don't know how many of you have been traumatized by watching the Afghanistan and the uh, Haitian refugees. We've just had 30,000 refugees on our southern border. Afghanistan, you've seen the pictures. The one that's brutalized me most is, a—I think, it's a father and a mother with a bunch of kids and one-hand luggage as they trudged their way towards apparent freedom? What did they leave behind that was so scary that they basically gave their home away, gave their possessions away, and the five of them, I think, trudging into an uncertain future with one bag amongst them? These people, the audience to whom it was written, were Jewish Jesus lovers. They were doubly persecuted. We know that when, the, when Rome burnt Jerusalem in about AD 73, I think, the Jews scattered. But before that, the Jesus Jews were persecuted, murdered, and killed. So there was a double trauma that they experienced. In fact, the Hebrews letter itself writes, remember those in earlier days after you have received the light, when you endured a great conflict full of suffering sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution at other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated you suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property Now, come on, all you homeowners. Meryl and I have a beautiful home in Costa Mesa, California. We are seven minutes from the beach. Jesus was more compelling than my house. If someone came to me and said, if you follow Jesus, I want your deed of sale. I want your house. Will I ponder, pause, or wait, or will I say, please have my house? Please take every painting in my house, painted by friends. Please take every piece of furniture which has a story attached to it. Jesus is more compelling than this house. It's not an intellectual acquiescence to an historical person all those years ago that we say, Yes, Jesus lived. Yes, He was incarnated. Yes, He died on the cross. Yes, He was put in a tomb. Yes, He rose. Thank you very much. I am now a Christian. The test to these men and women was that they were prepared to endure suffering, insult, persecution, side by side with those who went to prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of property. Ladies and gentlemen, how easily the deconstructionists amongst us have walked away as if Jesus can just be flippantly dismissed. I walk away from my faith. Sorry, I don't know which Jesus you're talking about. Because I can't dismiss him readily. The pandemic to me has been like a persecution. If you take a comparative study of what happened during persecution and what happened during the pandemic, I think the comparison is remarkable. What happened during the persecution and the pandemic? Here are a few thoughts. Number one, people scattered. Well, that's what happened during the pandemic. Number two, people weren't able to gather. Yep, that's what happened during the pandemic. Number three, there was a possibility of death. Oh, yep, that's what happened during the pandemic. There was a deep sense of loneliness. I'm by myself. Does anyone care? Does anyone even know I'm here? There was the trauma of mental health which happens when a man is walking with his wife and three kids with their hand luggage, and they've left everything behind because that is more scary than the uncertain future. There's a fear and anxiety that's been heightened. Yep, that's a pandemic. There is the deconstruction of church and of faith. Many fell away. During times of persecution, when they put a gun to your head, do you believe in Jesus? All that I have to say is no. One simple little two-letter word, and I will live, and I can go back to Merrill, and I can go back to my house, and I can go back to the way I lived. All that I have to say is no. Is Jesus that compelling? I had coffee with one of the new young guys in our church. We've got a very young church. Um, they're five couples older than 35. The body of the church is 18 to 35. And Paul's a Japanese American. Amazing story. Nearly died three times, twice with an OD. And I said, Paul, why did you keep doing drugs? He said, You know, two things. He said, In the drug community, there's a, a remarkable sense of usness. We share an usness, the world is against us. We share an usness, number one. And number two, he said, because the addiction is so extraordinarily satisfying. And I looked at him at our coffee at Kit. I said, Paul, well, how compelling must Jesus have been to you that you walked away from community and you walked away from addiction? And his eyes teared up. Ladies and gentlemen, how compelling is your Jesus? I don't say it judgmentally. I'm asking as a father with a broken heart, how compelling is your Jesus? Is it enough to splash your South African lifestyle with a bit of Jesus? Or is it Christian nationalism that holds you captive? Or is it your anti-vax stance or your conspiracy BS? I just want to talk about Jesus. Because he is compelling to me. I met him December 1976 in my parents' home in East Baston Drive, Westville. And he has grown more and more compelling for me. I had family say to me, Dad, please don't go to South Africa. Can you imagine if I sit before Jesus one day and he says, Chris, did you fulfill the call on your life? That you know, there was a pandemic. And my family was scared I was going to get sick. And it says, we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, and there is Paul who was executed, and there was Peter who was executed upside down, and there was Timothy who was beheaded, and there was all these people in the same, n- nudge each other and say, "Excuse me what? You wouldn't get the vaccine, and so you didn't fulfill the call of God on your life." The great cloud of witnesses will say, "Well, we don't understand this. We were imprisoned. We lost our property. We saw our daughters raped. We saw our sons butchered, slit at the throat, unless we said no to Jesus. And and you did what? We don't get it. Jesus is profoundly compelling. But we can make a decision. We're concealing what we know about Him. Or ever grow to discover the beauty, wonder, mystery of this incredible God Savior... That was given to us as a gift. This beautiful letter is about Jesus. That was, and that's why I think it's a letter of a mother. That letter was written in times of dreadful persecution. And I can almost see this mother. That's why, Priscilla, it's almost like she's cupping this child in her hand saying, Please, please. Please, it's Jesus. It's not the economy, first and foremost. It's not political systems, first and foremost. It's not social upheaval. It is Jesus. Talk about Jesus. Grab your Bibles with me, if you don't mind, while I catch my breath. Hebrews, please. I'm going to front end it. Look at a passage in the front. I'm going to back end it and land in Hebrews 13. It's all about Jesus, dear friends. It's all about Jesus. You know, there's a family in our church who are from England. They moved from Bath, England to join us. As we've gotten to know them, their parents are in their 70s, and they are living in a city of a country that has been recently overrun by militants. On a Zoom call, the kids begged their parents to come home. You're in your 70s. You, you've had a good life. You've, you've shared Jesus. And she tells me the tears that the parents and the children and the grandchildren shed when they said, listen, dears, we could die in an old age home or we could die in a roadside bomb counting for Jesus. It's far more preferable to die counting for Jesus on foreign shores martyred For our faith. It hasn't been without their pain and trauma. They've been harassed at every turn. Chased down. They've had to move in the dark of the night. From house to house. But they have loved. And this is what they said. What message will we send to this young Christian community in this country? If the moment things get tough the Christians bail. What will be our message? Jesus is not that compelling. It's not that transforming. He doesn't really protect us. He doesn't really care for us. Or... We're staying. And if we die, we die for the sake of the gospel. See, when that Jesus grips our soul, it's a totally different story. Hebrews chapter 2, please. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through the angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape If we ignore such a great salvation, do you see the mother's heart here? She doesn't write, or he doesn't write, we must pay attention. I was a school teacher at DHS. I had a kid in my standard eight class, whatever it is these days. He was a rugby player, surfer, and he loved chicks. That was his bit. And so, whenever I taught, I knew it was just over his head. He wasn't interested. And so, what I would do, I knew he had to get through standard eight. No good keeping him back. He's not going to learn anything more the next year because he was learning zero anyway. So I would walk across to his desk and say to the class, I want you to pay attention because this would appear in the exam, a.k.a. it's going to. A.k.a. I want to get you through standard eight, get you through standard nine. And the last I heard he was incredibly successful as a businessman. But my appeal to him was pay attention because this will get you to the next chapter of your life. That would have been beautiful. Pay attention. But, but the author says more. I want you to pay careful attention. When I was down in Oatsworth in the army, um, we were taught how to kind of take the pin out of the hand grenade and throw it. And needless to say, one guy dropped the live hand grenade in the trench where we were doing it. And you can imagine the scramble out of that. You can imagine the choice words used by the drill sergeants that weren't written in the Bible. You know what I mean. And then we got the speech. I want you to pay careful attention. Because this is a life and death thing. Every soldier who's been out on the front line will tell you I'm not really fighting for freedom. I'm not really fighting for my country. I'm fighting for my buddy on either side. Because if I look after them, they will look after me. This is a life and death situation. I want you to pay careful attention. But the author adds another word before that. I need you to pay most careful or more careful attention. This is three layers. Pay attention, pay careful attention, pay more careful attention lest we drift away. Tion was about three years old and it was a Wednesday morning I was working at my study uh, preparing for an elders meeting which we had that afternoon. We had his rocking chair and his toy box on the patio right outside of my study window and he spent the morning playing happily as he did and would. Went to an elders meeting, and Ken and Laura, who are here, Meryl's parents, were there. And about halfway through the elders meeting, I get a text. Chris, I think you need to come home. And with it was a picture of a rattlesnake. Now, our house backed onto a scout reservation. Thousands of, of hectares of undeveloped bush. Beautiful, beautiful place. So I did what Jesus told us to do, go out two by two. So I grabbed Jay. Jay had been a missionary in Africa. He knew how to kill snakes. I chose him Wisely, It was a revelation that God put into my spirit. Take Jay with you. Hey, I could carry boxes to to hoard in the snake. We got home, and there was this huge rattlesnake under the toy box where my son had been playing a few hours before. He was there. He'd eaten, and when they cut him open, he had three mice inside of him, and so we knew he was right where my boy was playing. Now, what did Mama Bear do when he woke up from his nap? Did she say, T, I want you to pay attention. T, I want you to pay careful attention. No, she got on her knees and she cupped his little face in her hands. And she said, T, I need you to pay more careful attention. What do you do when you see a rattlesnake? Oh, he said wisely. You scream and run away. And she said, no, 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 no. That's not what you do. This is what you do. You stand still. You call for us, and you slowly move back. Have you got it, T? You stand still, you call for us, and you slowly walk back. Yes, he said, I've got it. What must you do, said Meryl. Set T on, scream, and run away. He didn't really get it. But, but you see, what I read into this text is this high-powered maternal instinct to say, I need you to pay most careful attention, or you will drift away. We all have altars, or we should have, of remembrance. Those moments where God takes a passage of Scripture, and He drives a stake deep into our hearts. This is mine, one of mine. And it comes from uh, Psalm 103. Because I need to pay more careful attention to this great gospel, or I will drift away. I was probably 19 When God spoke to me from this text for the first time. Praise the Lord, O my soul. What's David saying? He's saying, soul, I don't trust you. You're too downcast. You're too vulnerable. You're too emotional. I can't trust you, soul. So I need to tell you, soul, Praise the Lord. It's a personal injunction and instruction. I need you to praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. When? When the circumstances don't point to a living God who is personal, intimate, and communicates, it doesn't point that that God lives. That's the time, he says, and he speaks to his soul, lift yourself out of the, quag- the quagmire of your own doubting and let the Spirit of God lift your worship. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of His benefits. Our instinct is to go to the things we haven't got. The prayers God hasn't answered. The psalmist isn't saying that. Remember the things that he has done. Remember? Now declare those things. Who who forgives all of your sins, heals all of your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, and crowns you with love and compassion. Soul. Praise this God. Why am I passionate about it? Because in my moments of uncertainty and vulnerability and feeling overwhelmed and traumatized by walking with Jesus for 45 years, this is my go-to text. Soul, praise the Lord. If I don't do that, I, like you, can drift away. Do you think I don't want to live a comfortable life? Do you think I'd rather have a five-star hotel or camping? Or staying in a pastor's house on their kid's bed which is super janky? Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of His benefits. This Jesus is worth every single minute. He will satisfy your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He's made known His ways to Moses, etc., etc. The Lord is compassionate and gracious. He does not treat us as our sins deserve Takes our sins from us and separates us as far as the east is from the west. You know, I've never doubted my salvation. I've been an idiot. I've been a jerk. But I've never doubted because I never got myself saved. Jesus got me saved. Even when I have sinned. And it's always interesting. A woman came to me one day and said, please don't tell me you sin." And I said, why? She said, because I can't cope with it. I said, ma'am, I am so sorry. But I am a sinner just like you. I think bad thoughts, I say bad things, I have bad attitudes, I do bad acts. I need Jesus just like you need Jesus. Except that my reminder is, and I literally say this, Lord, you take my sins and separate them from me as far as the east is from the west. And so I can carry on. It is absolutely spectacular. Dear church. Pay more careful attention so that you do not drift away. I am traumatized by people walking away from the faith so cheaply. Who is the Jesus they fell in love with? Was he one we could dismiss like a Marvel person, like that X Factor? No, that was last year's movie. I want a new movie. I'm so sorry you feel that way. I can never dismiss the church. You saw my daughter there. I walked her down the aisle as an 18-year-old. We stopped halfway, and she said, Dad, can I have one more dance with you? And while everyone stood waiting, her and I danced to Josh Groban's You Lift Me Up. And someone commented, it's the wedding where more men cried than women. Can I tell you about the sleepless nights we had with her? I certainly can. Can I tell you about her colic and her sicknesses and her deceptions? I certainly can, but I never, ever stopped loving her. Every day. Did you see that face? Do you think I don't want to see her every day of my life? Do you think I don't want to get a text? Hey, Dad, I'm making pizzas. Do you want to come around for dinner? Every single day, I miss that daughter of mine. But Jesus is more compelling than having my little girl by my side. And you are more compelling than my lips so flippantly and easily criticize you. You're beautiful. You're beautiful beyond description. And one day we will walk you down the aisle to go and meet your groom. It's never about us. It's about preparing you. And one day you will be groomed just like my daughters were. Both of them, and the hair was done, and the dress fitted snugly, and they had not eaten much, so they were cute and tight and little bitty things. And we walked them down the aisle to two six-foot-four husbands, and in part, my job was done. Ladies and gentlemen, be very careful how you speak of his bride. You do not touch her. You do. And I would have taken any. Honestly, I'm enough of an Afrikaner with a temper to take anyone's head off who spoke ill of my daughter, how much more protective should I be with a bride that will live forever? How dare. (laughs) How dare I flippantly criticize the church. Anyone could have criticized our parenting when we spent night after night with a daughter who wouldn't sleep, sometimes watching the sun come up the next morning. Anyone could have said, oh, geez, they really suck as parents. His bride is beautiful. Okay, lastly, 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 lastly. I just want to take you to the end of Hebrews 13. Thank you for being so gracious. Thank you for hearing me out. Thank you for letting my passions leak over you. I want my life to count for Jesus. That's all. That's all. Nothing else is compelling. Nothing is worth it. Nothing is more impressive than Jesus that's all I want to talk about, I prayed this morning, I was up early, and I was just praying, Lord let them go home, and the the talk in the car and over lunch is Jesus, then I've I've done my job, not Jesus Christ is passionate, or did you like his denim jacket, so I've got a designer who works for Billabong who gave me a jacket, that's all, but Jesus, now that's a different story. Right at the end of the book, I think Priscilla writes this. Now, may the God of grace, thank you, Christian. You mentioned that this morning. Who, through the blood of the eternal covenant, brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great Shepherd of our faith. Now, we that doesn't mean anything to us, does it? Really? I mean, it doesn't. Any of you seen a shepherd? Any of you been a shepherd? But, but to the little Jewish kid, it meant much. Because around their dinner time, dinner time conversation, it wasn't Kanye or Khaleesi that they spoke about. It was about David and Esther. Can you believe Esther? Mom, can you believe she, she joined the king's harem? That she had sex with him at his desire? Come on, Mom, you've got to explain this because that's damn confusing to me. That was their dinner time conversation. The great heroes of the Jewish faith, the great stories of the wilderness and, and Moses. And so when they read this, it isn't like you and me. Oh, that's a cute theological presupposition. Jesus, the great shepherd, interesting. No, no, they knew what this meant. And where do you think their little hearts and minds in their brokenness went to? Exactly. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall lack nothing. How can you say that? How can you say that you were persecuted, put in prison, house confiscated, an uncertain future, all your money gone, and all that I can say is, oh, I lack nothing. He leads me besides quiet waters. If I could give you a takeaway gift, it would be, read this every morning when you wake up. You are my shepherd, I will lack nothing ultimately when Meryl and I look at 45 years of walking with Jesus we can say I lack nothing can I tell you about the years that I wasn't paid and I did it free I lack nothing so I tell you about the times we were knifed in the back by people who was angry as sin who walked up to my face and said we will destroy you I lack nothing He leads me besides quiet waters. Anxiety? Can I speak with great tenderness? Merrill's a therapist. Can I, sp- that anxiety that we live with? If every day you say, Lord, you lead me besides quiet waters. Every day. The anxiety with which I wake up can be gently quietened down by the shepherd who takes me by the hand through quiet. Warders. He refreshes my soul in a pandemic and persecution in hatred and bitterness and divisiveness and looting and rioting. He refreshes my soul. He guides me through the paths of, um, in His namesake, the righteous paths, even though I walk through the darkest valley. You know, dear friends, I need to land. I went through about seven years of the dark night of the soul, St. John of the Cross called it. I'm an optimist. I'm a can-do guy. I'm a robust man, and I have never known darkness like that. I did not want to get out of bed. I did not want to face the challenges. I did not want to be alone. And for various reasons, my phone never rang. And I would text a pastor and say, hey, what are you doing? Can I have coffee with you? The brutal calamity of loneliness, of brokenness. But my Bible tells me that He will refresh my soul. He will walk me through the dark night of the soul. When Asher Nadeen left, this is my closing comment, to plant 3CI, I was still a musician playing, singing. And I remember in the old military hall at DLI, I picked up the guitar and sang a Martin Smith song, Delirious, We're so nervous for your glory. Please guide our steps. We stand in awe and wonder as we see your holiness. Forgetting what has gone before, we look to what's ahead. I don't remember this next line. We look to what... But we don't go out in haste, O Lord. Lord, lead us through the wilderness. Lord, lead us through the wilderness. We trust that you will provide. Have Meryl and I had to do that 100 percent, ladies and gentlemen. We planted a church four years ago, with no guaranteed income, no team, and I was 57. And God said, "I want you to plant a church," and you will. T-. And I said, "Lord, can I just raise money?" He said, "Absolutely not. You will trust me." I, s- I felt him say, "How much?" you want me to? I said, can I trust you for $50,000? I said, okay. I watched $50,000 come in from the most random sources. We trust that you'll provide. Be our cloud by day and our fire by night. Till we reach the other side. Here it comes, ladies and gentlemen. And when we look back, all we will see is your goodness. That's all we'll see. I want to invite you afresh into that kind of Jesus story. Can I pray for you? Oh, precious Jesus, forgive us for the low grade with which we know you. You're a sermon, you're a quote, you're a podcast. But I'm sure you grieve on the inside because that's not who you are. This is who you are. And this is the shepherd that will walk us through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil because your rod and your staff will comfort me. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord. Who is the house of the Lord? We are. Not individual Christians floating off doing their own thing. You want to find Chris and Merrill? We are here in the house of the Lord. And we will be in the house of the Lord forever. How compelling is your Jesus?